you know, more and more people are getting treated and yet our outcomes keep getting worse. More and people on disability, more and more people committing suicide, more and more problems with early death. What's going on? Welcome to the Drew Perot Podcast. Each week we explore the inner workings of the brain and the body with one of the brightest minds in wellness, medicine, mindset, and I'll add to that for today's episode, journalism. This week's guest is author and previously journalist, Robert Whitaker. Now, today we're talking about a very complicated and somewhat controversial topic. And that topic is really answering this core question that Robert Whitaker set off to ask and answer many years ago. And that question is, do psychiatric drugs do more long-term harm, long-term harm than good? Now, as you can imagine, investigating this topic is opening a whole can of worms. And we wanted to invite the gentleman that wrote the definitive book on this topic for making the argument that long-term usage of many psychiatric drugs is not only understudied, but not studied at all. And there needs to be a more honest conversation about the pros and cons informed patient consent when patients are put on long-term usage of psychiatric drugs. Now, today's argument is being presented by Robert Whitaker because he outlined this argument inside of his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness. By the way, this book, which came out in 2010, won the U.S. Investigative Reporters and Editors Book Award for Best Investigative Journalism. Now, in addition to this book, Robert is also the author and co-author of five books, which all tell the history of psychiatry. And again, on today's podcast, Robert is making the argument for a very specific viewpoint. Maybe in a future podcast, we'll have someone else on who has a different viewpoint, or even better, I'd love to host a debate between people who have varying viewpoints on this very complicated and crazy world of psychiatric medicine. Now, prior to writing books, Robert worked as a science reporter at the Albany Times Union newspaper in New York for a number of years. Uh, in addition to his books that he's authored and co-authored, he's the founder of madinamerica.com, a website that features research news and blogs by an international group of writers interested in rethinking psychiatry. Now, Robert isn't a doctor, and he's the first to share that with people who follow his work. But I want to add in that it was a doctor, a friend of mine, a psychiatrist based here in Los Angeles, who was the person that introduced me to Robert's work because this psychiatrist knew that our system is broken and we have to rethink psychiatric care if we're going to get to the root of the problem. On today's podcast, we talk about all that and more. If you have anyone in your life that is on psychiatric drugs, this conversation is for you. And might I also add, if you're ever considering making any changes to your medication, please consult your healthcare practitioner, and your doctor. It's okay for you to get education. It's okay for this podcast to be a part of that education. But when it comes to making any modifications to those medications, you have to and you must work with your doctor. If your doctor isn't open-minded, you can go and look for an integrative doctor or a functional medicine doctor in your area or even a psychiatrist who's more open-minded and can make the right decisions for your health 
with you. Now on to today's episode with Robert Whitaker. Robert, thank you for being on the podcast. I've shared with you that I'm a big fan. We've had some past podcast guests that are also big fans of yours, Dr. Omid Naeem in particular, who's been a regular guest of this podcast. And I want to start off big picture and get your thoughts on a question, a central question that you've looked at through the course of your career and with your books, uh, some of which are award-winning books in this topic. Do drugs that we're using for mental health, psychiatric drugs, do they do more long-term harm than good? That's the topic we want to ask today and dive into. So I'd love to start off with that question. Well, you know, this is a question the whole country should be asking. I mean, if you look at the percentage of people that are on these drugs long-term, it's something like 20% now. So you want to have evidence, of course, that you're doing more good than harm. I mean, that's what the evidence-based medicine should be able to show us. And I just want to say, too, the very fact that we're medicating our kids so regularly now, we really want to be sure that this is actually helping them grow up and thrive. Unfortunately, the evidence is quite clear if you really want to look at it. And we can talk about both the you know, studies that have been done and also the biological reasons for why the only conclusion to draw, if you really look at the evidence, is that the drugs do more harm than good. Now, in what way do I mean this? When we talk about assessing any medical intervention over time, um, you really need to know what are the natural recovery rates. You know, we hear about Hippocrates. He says, do no harm, right? And we like to think that means, oh, don't make your patient worse than when he comes in. But it's actually much more complex than that. Hippocrates was saying there's often a capacity in nature to recover from whatever ails you, including like psychiatric problems. And your intervention to not do harm has to improve on that natural capacity to recover. And that natural capacity to recover is just missing from our modern understanding of how psychiatric drugs affect long-term outcomes. So when I wrote about this, when I first took this investigation really you know, to heart and wrote Anatomy of an Epidemic, one of the first things to do is to try to figure out what are the natural outcomes for these different disorders. Anyway, just the, the, the short answer to your question is this. As you look at long-term outcomes, what you find are, are a couple of things. You do find over and over again over the long term, in fact, it's the untreated patients, those who are not staying on the drugs long term for whatever the category is, who end up doing better over the long term. And by the way, that's even for psychotic disorder. That's even for schizophrenia on the whole, in the aggregate. It's though, And we have long term studies that show that. They just don't get promoted to the public. So what you see in a capsule over and over again is this, whether it be depression, whether it be psychosis, whether it be bipolar disorder, these different diagnostic categories, or ADHD, on the whole, in the aggregate, they're increasing the likelihood, A, that people will remain symptomatic years later. That's one. Two, that they'll be more likely to end up disabled or functionally impaired. And three, that... in so often is saleable with antidepressants and stimulants that they may, that the initial use of the drug may put them on a path where they end up with more severe diagnoses as well. And that's what you see 
not just in an individual study, but when you try to look at the research literature in the whole, which has been collected ever since 1955, which is the beginning of the psychopharmacology era, you see this story emerging time and time again. And it's, it's, it emerges from, by the way, the very best, what we consider the very best research. National Institute of Mental Health Studies, for example, are key to this whole story. And then there's some other sort of national stories that national studies that have been conducted in other countries that also tell the same story. And that's why, you know, this is so contradictory to what we were sort of prepared to believe as a society, right? But what makes this the conclusion so convincing is that it's basically an evidence puzzle you put together that 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 appears over time, this story, this conclusion, and it really is consistent over and over again, beginning with early research in the 60s. And then finally, we can explore this is, and this all, all this occurs away from the public. But within the research literature, going back to the 70s, there was a beginning of an understanding of why this might be so. And, and the basic biological explanation for this is that these drugs all perturb normal neurotransmitter systems. We don't know what's wrong. We're not fixing a pathology. And that in response to that perturbation of a normal system, your brain undergoes this compensatory adaptation and ends up operating in an abnormal state. And researchers for a long time have said, this I think is the problem with these drugs. Over the long term, they induce these you know, physical changes, biological changes that actually make people more vulnerable to the symptoms that drugs are supposed to treat. Now, that's actually a very biological explanation. There's other elements to drug treatment that clearly come into play. So for example, how about hope? How about sense of like you can make changes in your life, in your environment to sort of end up in a different place? Well, that whole story that drugs are the answer uh, doesn't lend itself to that sort of a larger response to whatever is troubling people in which they change environments, that sort of thing. It robs people of hope. All the things that actually in medicine we know are so essential, you know, to better long-term outcomes. And finally, one last thing. So you can wind me up with a question and then I just keep going. But anyway, um, you know, you're, you're interested in functional medicine and how the body affects you know, outcomes as well. I mean, health, health arises not just from in the brain, but in the body as well. Well, so often these drugs interrupt or, or harm sort of physiological functions in, this, in the gut, that sort of thing, cause metabolic dysfunction. So there's this other problem with drugs is that they induce physical problems as well. So yeah, I, I hate, I mean, this is really a tragedy and it's, it's, a, it's an answer, a conclusion that we need to address. But it, it, unfortunately, it's quite clear that over the long term, the use of these medications worsen outcomes in the aggregate. They do more harm than good. And my only caveat here is there is a spectrum of outcomes with these medications. And so there are some people who do okay on them. But we're talking about outcomes in the aggregate and all, also compared to what is sort of the natural capacity to recover. You know, before we go into some of those studies and the research and a little bit of the narrative that put us in this big fat mess that we're into today, I wanted to give you an opportunity. You know, you're no stranger to the topic or term of controversy, and I'm no stranger <laughs> either for some of the episodes. It seems to be that anytime you have uh, some questions about 
some of the narratives that are being presented in any category, nutrition, uh, immune system, could be any aspect, mental health, how the body functions, how the brain functions, you're naturally going to be an outlier. And uh, as an outlier, uh, people will often take your words out of context or only focus on one aspect. So would love upfront, before we continue further, to give you an opportunity to say or share that... Um, you know, it's not that you find that there's no space for medications. This piggybacks off the last thing that you were saying. There could be some place for these uh, uh, psychiatric medications that are there. What you're talking about in your last answer here is on the whole and their overprescribingness in our society, both here in the United States as well as globally. Is that an accurate way to describe it? This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. I've tried a lot of different diets, and the one that I've found that feels best for me personally is the Pecan Diet, created by my friend and business partner, Dr. Mark Hyman. I actually look at it as more of a balanced, nutrient-focused lifestyle than an actual diet. Now, part of the Pecan Diet approach is incorporating small amounts of high-quality animal protein. A little bit goes a long way, and it's all about quality over quantity, which is why Dr. Hyman uses the term condi meat, like condiment, condiment, get it, to explain how to eat meat without making it the star of the meal. When it comes to enjoying red meat like beef, it's super important to always choose 100% grass-fed for optimal nutrient density. I always keep some grass-fed ground beef from ButcherBox on hand in my freezer because it comes from farms that allow cattle to roam on pasture and it lasts in the freezer for months. Whenever I have time to do some meal prep, I use grass-fed ground beef with tons and tons of veggies to make a huge batch of paleo chili that I can use throughout the week. It's really important for me to source meat from a place that I can trust. ButcherBox only partners with farmers and ranchers who believe in going above and beyond when it comes to caring for the animals, the environment, and sustainability. Plus, they make shopping way easier by delivering right to your doorstep. ButcherBox has a variety of different boxes, and you can choose your box and frequency. For a limited time, you can sign up today and get two pounds of ground beef for free in your first box plus $10 off by going to butcherbox.com slash Drew. That's butcher, B-U-T-C-H-E-R, box, B-O-X.com backslash Drew, D-H-R-U. That's two pounds of ground beef for free in your first box by going to butcherbox.com backslash Drew and using the code Drew for $10 off your first box. I want to talk to you about a groundbreaking flagship bacterial strain that's been linked in thousands of scientific publications from everything from weight loss and better blood sugar control to lowering overall levels of inflammation. So what's this strain called? It's called Acromancia and it's made by the company Pendulum. So why the heck do we want Acromancia and what does it do for our overall gut health and microbiome? So Acromancia feeds on our intestinal mucosal layer and modulates its thickness. That's a good thing. In exchange for providing Acromancia with the house and food, it pays us back by producing short-chain fatty acids like propionate and enabling other strains to produce butyrate, which is super important for healing a leaky gut, supporting the immune system, and maintaining overall health. I first heard about Acromancia from my business partner, Dr. Mark Hyman, when he got really sick a few years ago and his gut health took a turn for the worse. He said that building up his acromancia was critical 
for helping him heal and support his overall gut restoration and getting his health back on track. Because acromancia can only survive in an oxygen-free environment like your gut, it has been difficult for scientists to formulate it into a probiotic until now. Pendulum is the first company to figure out how to harness the amazing benefits of acromancia in a probiotic capsule, which is why I've been taking the probiotic daily ever since I got introduced to the company. Right now, if you're interested in acromancia, this flagship bacterial strain, Pendulum is offering my community 20% off your first purchase of their Pendulum Acromancia probiotic supplement. All you have to do is go to their website, pendulumlife.com. That's pendulum, P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M, life, L-I-F-E.com, and use the code DREW20, spelled D-H-R-U-20, for 20% off your first purchase. Well, uh, certainly there's been an overprescribing, no question about that. And the more you get away from their primary uses, the more likely you're, you know, you're going to do some harm. I, I stay away. I mean, I think your question's really good here. Let me just step back for a second as to who Please. I am. Because there's sometimes a sense if you end up in a controversial space, people think, oh, you have a, a horse to ride or something like that. I have a very traditional background. So my background was, A, I was a, a medical, uh, I covered medicine for newspapers, the Albany Times Union for, for a time. I was the medical reporter. Uh, then, I, then I did a time at, uh, I was a night science journalism fellow at MIT. So I got that training in how to report on science. Then I was director of publications at Harvard Medical School for a time. And this was in the 1990s. When the idea of evidence-based medicine really came to the fore, and one of the ideas about evidence-based medicine is, is that there's a capacity of doctors to be deluded about the merits of their therapies. So this is why you really have to go to the evidence as opposed to just what they say. Now, at this time, I was very much a believer in the common wisdom because when I reported on psychiatry, I would I'd call up experts and they'd say, Listen, uh, these drugs, are they fix chemical imbalances in the brain. They're like insulin for diabetes. I believe that, of course, because that's what the experts were telling me. Now, my whole entry, and I think this is key because you're basically asking me, Drew, you know, what sort of mindset or background do I bring to this whole topic? And also, by the way, after I left Harvard Medical School, I co-founded a publication called Sensor Watch, which looked at the development of, of uh, the, the testing of new drugs. So I got very involved in sort of how trials are designed and that sort of thing. But anyway, here's how I got involved in psychiatry and, and this whole story. I never had much of an interest in psychiatry. But in 1998, I was doing a series for the Boston Globe on abuses of psychiatric patients in research settings. Okay. And at this time, I had a completely conventional understanding. I thought we were making great progress in treating schizophrenia, great progress in treating depression. These drugs fix chemical imbalances. So I was doing that series, and we wrote about these drugs fixing chemical imbalances. But right at the end, just before it was published, I sort of was directed to some studies that seemed to belie the story of progress, especially around the antipsychotics. It was two studies. One was a study by Harvard researchers at Harvard Medical Research researchers that had charted outcomes for schizophrenia over the past century. 
Now remember the conventional narrative is antipsychotics comes in in 1995 and it produces this great advance in care, makes it possible to empty the asylums. Well, what Harvard researchers had found was that actually outcomes for schizophrenia patients had declined since 1975 and were now no better than they had been in the first third of the 20th century when people were locked up in asylums and treated with all sorts of crazy therapies. Well, that belied this narrative of progress. That made me ask myself, well, what? how could that be? And then there were two studies done by the World Health Organization that compared outcomes in three developing countries, India, Nigeria, and Colombia, with outcomes, this is for schizophrenia patients, in the U.S. and five other developed countries. Now, the first study was five years in length, and they came up with a very stunning finding. They found that outcomes were by far much better in India and Nigeria than any of the Western countries. So much so, and listen to this, they concluded that living in a developed country is a strong predictor you won't recover if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I'm like, why wow. would living in a developed country with all our medical achievements be a strong predictor you won't recover? Then the World Health Organization authorities said, wow, this is odd. Let's do another study. And they said, in this study, our hypothesis is one of the reasons for the better outcomes in the developing country is the patients there are more medication compliant. People in the West, they don't really resist what the doctors tell them, but in these poor countries, they're going to stay on their antipsychotic medication. So that was the hypothesis. So they now looked at medication adherence in the second, uh, second study, and what did they find? They found that in the poor countries, particularly India and Nigeria, where the outcomes were the best, they used the drugs acutely, but not chronically. They didn't keep their schizophrenia patients on the medications uh, for long periods of time. Now, this was completely contrary to the, to the understanding and the practices here in the United States of the developed countries. And then they went back. So they only 16% only in, if actually in India and Nigeria, only about 10% of patients were kept on the drugs long term schizophrenia patients. And then the WHO investigators went back 15 years later and they said, wow, the outcomes are so diverged. They've diverged so much in these poor countries. People, are, so many are back to work. They're asymptomatic, et cetera. Those were the two studies that made me want to investigate is the story we te are telling ourselves about these medications. Is it true? Can you find it in the evidence base for what we believe is true? So my point is, I didn't come at this as a non-believer, or as a, say, a therapist who believes in other types of things. I came at this as a believer, as a reporter who had been told that this is what we know. So now going back, now jump ahead to your other question. Really in medicine, there's always a question about for whom and for how long, right? In other words, if you, if you want to make best use of medications, you have to figure out for whom and for how long those the drugs should be used. And that's what I believe we need to get back to with the use of psychiatric medications is for who and for how long. And so like, for example, you'll find in the world of psychosis, there's a program in Northern Finland where they've sort of uh, figured that out for whom and for how long with the use of antipsychotics. And once they figure that out, in, their outcomes improve dramatically. So I'm not against the use of medications. What I'm for is their judicious use around this for whom and for how long. And part of the judicious use needs to have as its element informed consent and consideration of long-term outcomes. So I'm really glad you brought this out. 
it, it's, it's a question of for whom and for how long and incorporating into our knowledge base this, this, this long-term evidence. No, thank you for clarifying that because I think it's an important point. And I would add one more question to that, which is probably a sub part of one of those two questions anyway, for whom, for how long. We recently had on Dr. John Abramson from Harvard, uh, also a guest lecturer oh, sure. at Harvard, family physician. And he, in his book, uh, The Sickening, he's also helping us understand that because all these medical studies are proprietary in the way that they're fu funded and you really never have medical review uh, scientists, doctors, publications that have access to the raw data, um, there's that whole transparency piece that's there. But there's also this question that we don't really ask the question of these pharmaceutical companies compared to what, right? So for who, for how long, and also compared to what, right? Compared to what are we saying that this uh, antipsychotic or this uh, SSRI is going to be a better intervention when it especially seems that in since the time of your publication of your uh, of your book, there's been an explosion in more practitioners, medical doctors, researchers coming out and talking about the body and the brain connection. And inside of there, there's so many things, whether it's nutrition, uh, group programs, uh, EMDR and walking therapy that in and themselves are potential tools that are in the toolbox for practitioners that have strong evidence base and also, more importantly, have extremely low chances of really any side effects that are going to be coming in. So I think that's those are important questions to ask, as you mentioned, for whom and for how long, and additionally, compared to what other interventions are we talking about? Yeah, this is really a big problem. So First of all, what you're talking about is in the drug, the industry-funded studies. Those are generally short. Those are short-term studies, six weeks. So first of all, you have the problem is we're not even looking at long-term outcomes, right? Second of all, the drug companies are going to design their stories, studies to try to make their drug look good. And there's various ways you can do this with designs, uh, eligibility criteria, that sort of thing. So that's a problem. Then of course they analyze it, and they're gonna they're gonna do everything they can to put a positive spin on that. And we know this, and, and Dr. Abramson writes about this in his book, Sickening. So this 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 information we get from short term trials, it, it's not that those aren't scientific trials; those are marketing trials, basically. And here's <laughs> and going to your point, Drew. No, they're, they're they're trials built to market drugs. That's what they're done. They're not done to really assess the safety and efficacy of the drugs. The drug company isn't interested in that. The drug company is interested in a result it can use to basically to sell the drug. That's the purpose of the trial. In fact, by the way, when they design their trials, drug companies, they go, they bring their marketing people into the, the room and say, what story do we need to tell in order to sell these drugs? So there's a the design mm -hmm. to tell a story. But going to your point with psychiatric drugs, not compared to what? You say compared to placebo. That's not true. It's not even compared to placebo. What happens in the drug industry trials for antidepressants or antipsychotics is they take a group of people, a select group of people, that are doing usually uh, okay on the drug, okay? And then they have a design like this. They yank, let's say with an antipsychotic. You get a, a group of patients somewhat stable on the drug. And then you randomize them in this way. Well, first of all, what you do is you wash them all out. You abruptly take them off the drug which is going to provoke a withdrawal effect, right? And then half are randomized to placebo and half are put back on the drug they've been on of the, the type. 
So you have a group of patients that have been accustomed to the drug and they're compared to people who've been abruptly withdrawn from the drug. So it's not a placebo group, it's a discontinuation group. And a discontinuation group, we know there are withdrawal symptoms. So the very the placebo group is actually a group that can be expected to do poorly because they're going through withdrawal from the drug. So that's the first problem with those trials. And now the second thing you're talking about is we should be comparing them to an alternative, an alternative form of therapy. And I'll give you an example of what happens when this. There was an NIMH-funded study that, that ran like this, related to depressed elderly adults. One group got an SSRI alone. One group got SSRI plus exercise therapy. And one got exercise therapy alone. Now, exercise therapy, we knew sort of what you're going is, that has additional benefits. Aerobic capacity improves. Maybe you're out for a walk in nature, whatever it might be, but we know that exercise actually can be positive for mood. So what happened? After, what was it? After, got to get this right. After 16 weeks, there was, um, for drug plus exercise, I think that was the best sort of reduction in symptoms, even better than exercise alone. But then at the end of 10 months, the best was exercise alone. They had the best stay well rate. And in fact, not only was drug worse, but drug plus exercise was worse. In other words, drug was acting as an anchor on exercise. So that was an NIMH funded study. Now the expectation was, that drug plus exercise will be the recommended form of care, right? You, you can combine them. But what they actually found was it was exercise alone that had the best long-term results. And when they asked people in that study, why did you find exercise so helpful? It wasn't just the benefit of, you know, getting in better shape and all, but they also had a sense that, oh, with exercise, they were taking sort of control of their own fate as well. They were asserting some, some willpower towards it as well. But we never hear about this, but this is the point. You should be comparing a drug therapy to some other therapy, including exercise therapy, maybe rock climbing therapy for kids. In other words, there's a lot of different ways you can change environments to help people, uh, but that's not how we test drugs. We test drugs, especially psychiatric drugs, in this artificial environment that is biased against placebo, and it's short-term, and results are spun as they're presented to the public. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. And I mean, so many of these things come into these narratives that then become memes in our society, and even though we find them to be not true, uh, they're sort of baked into... Uh, just people's understanding. And one of those narratives is this narrative of chemical imbalances. So let's talk about where did that narrative of a chemical imbalance come from? And when did we start to know that not only was it not the full story, but that actually it could be missing the boat entirely? Yeah, this is, you know, memes and all. This was a, a, a story that was so successful in selling, in selling uh, drugs to, to the you know, to the population. I, I, I'll tell you, I believed in it. And I'll tell you how my path to seeing that it didn't hold true uh, arose. 
So when I was doing that series uh, for the Boston Globe in 1998, long time ago now, everyone, and I, it was really focused on psychotic patients, okay? So everybody, and we had these new antipsychotics, Zyprexa, Risperdal, that were said to be uh, a second generation of atypical antipsychotics, so much better than the first generation. And everybody I called up said, oh, these drugs fix a chemical balance in the brain like insulin for diabetes. So that was the framework for the series, which by the way, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. So I should have been invested in that story. But what happened was right towards the end, even after the series was prepared, I started questioning some of the things that were the framework. And one of them was this idea of these drugs fix chemical imbalances. So I called up... Uh, a leading researcher. And I said, listen, I just want to find, I just want to read the research where you found that schizophrenia is due to too much dopamine and therefore these drugs fix it. And I swear to God, this is what the guy told me. <laughs> he said, well, we didn't really find that. It's a metaphor like insulin for diabetes. And I said, well, I understand it's a metaphor. Just tell me where you found that people who, you know, have schizophrenia had these overactive dopamine systems. He said, well, we didn't really find that we tell people this because it becomes an explanation they can understand as to why they should take the drug. And I was gobsmacked by this. And then I went and I believe it or not, I got through to some experts at Janssen were the maker of Risperdal, which was marketing these drugs as fixing a chemical imbalance, their drug Risperdal. But I got not to the PR person, I managed to find a research and he said, ah, this is embarrassing. I don't know why we say this. It's just, that's not what we found. So now, this actually was one of the things I wanted to write about. I felt like the, pu the public is being told one thing. And by the way, we reporters were repeating that. And yet, apparently, the science literature tells something else. So here's what you find when you actually dig into the scientific literature. You find that the chemical imbalance theory arose not from understanding or discoveries of what was happening in people so diagnosed, but from an understanding of how the drugs acted on the brain. So, for example, we get antipsychotics in the 1950s, and in the 1960s, they finally understand what these new drugs do. I mean, they're called antipsychotics. They were introduced as major tranquilizers, but they get renamed as antipsychotics. Is what they do is they block dopamine receptors in the brain. And as you know how, how neurons communicate in the brain, you have a presynaptic uh, neuron that releases that chemical messenger, that neurotransmitter, into that tiny gap between neurons, which we call the synaptic cleft, and then that molecule, say dopamine, binds with receptors on the postsynaptic neuron. That's how neurons communicate. Now, what an anti, the antipsychotics do, and like Thorazine and all, they, they sit on that receptor. They're, it's like pouring glue into that receptor so the molecule can't bind with receptor, and this thwarts dopamine trans, transmission. So, researchers said, well, we think these drugs work, so maybe since they work by blocking dopamine, people have overactive dopamine, okay, symptoms. And now they have to, we're going to start doing research in the 70s to see if that's true. And I, I can follow with that. The antidepressant story was the same. And the whole chemical imbalance story arises from antidepressants and antipsychotics. So the first antidepressant, what do the antidepressants do? Well, let's just focus on the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So serotonin goes in into that synaptic cleft, 
that gap between neurons. And then the brain has to have a way to remove that molecule from that synaptic cleft in order to make a crisp messaging system. And the molecule, serotonin, is removed in one of two ways. Either a, uh, an enzyme comes along and metabolizes that molecule, and then metabolites are carted off as waste. But most just goes back up into the presynaptic neuron via reuptake channels, and it's stored there for later reuse, okay? That's the serotonin. What does an SSRI do? It blocks that reuptake process. So serotonin stays longer in the synaptic cleft than normal. You're upping serotonin activity. So researchers hypothesized maybe serotonin is due to, excuse me, maybe depression is due to too little serotonin in the brain. That's the root of the hypothesis. That's where it came from. Now they have to see, do depressed patients actually have low serotonin? Well, as early as 1984, the NIMH did a study precisely on that. And here's what they found. We're not finding anything that shows that there's a lesion or an abnormality in serotonin in depressed patients. Now, that was in 1984. Now, Prozac comes to market in 1987. And there's, we hear all about how it fixes a, a, you know, a serotonin imbalance in the brain, a low serotonin. They continue to do other types of research to try to find, is there something wrong with the serotonergic system? Now, you can go to the 1998 American Psychiatric Association textbook of psychiatry, and here's what it says. This, it's called the monoamine hypothesis of depression, is dead. It didn't pan out. We've done all these ways of looking to see if people with depression have low serotonin, and we didn't find it to be true. And then, in their own textbook, they say, you know, this is really sort of a stupid or a silly hypothesis because there's no reason that the, the underlying pathology of a disorder should be the opposite of what the drug does. That's 1998. The, do, the dopamine hyperactivity theory was, was basically seen as de, uh, not proving true by the early 1990s. There was still some sense that maybe there's a momentary sort of increase in dopamine activity at the moment of psychosis, but there actually wasn't a lesion in the brain. And here's what you'll find in the research literature. Kenneth Kenler, something like 2004, he's one of the world's leading researchers into the chemical imbalance theory. He says this, we have hunted for big, simple neurochemical explanations for psychiatric disorders, and we have not found them. Mm. Ronald Pies, who's the Ameri he, he was the um, editor-in-chief of Psychiatric Times, which is a trade publication for the American Psychiatric Association. In 2011, he said this about the chemical imbalance theory. The chemical imbalance theory of mental disorders is a kind of urban myth, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. Now, <laughs> in a way, he's right. Well-informed psychiatrists always knew his hypothesis, and they knew it was falling apart in the 1980s. But what happened was, even as that was happening in the scientific literature, the APA, American Psychiatric Association, some of the advocacy groups, and certainly the drug industry were nevertheless promoting it as having been found to be true. That's the great betrayal of the American public. They were told a falsehood that they had something wrong with their brains, something known to be wrongs with the brain, the drugs could fix it, and this is why they needed to take the drugs long-term, and that was never supported in the science. And there's even a worse 
part to this story. Please. Here's the, here's the worst part, <laughs> the most unsettling part. In the 1970s, the NIMH funded four studies into the longer-term effects or outcomes with antipsychotics. NIMH funded, not drug companies, okay? Four studies. Because they were worried, it seemed like patients were relapsing more frequently now than they were before the use of these drugs, okay? All four studies found that to be true. Greater relapse now. And, and these were studies that compared, by the way, at the time, patients treated, schizophrenic patients treated with drugs in the hospital and without drugs, and they followed them anywhere from two or three years. Each time the relapse rate was for those in the medicated groups. And so an NIMH researcher by the name of William Carpenter raises a very haunting question. He says, we know that once psychotic patients are on antipsychotics, they are more likely to relapse if they then come off, okay? And that's the relapse studies. Once you're on, if you abruptly take away the drug, you're at high risk of relapse. He says, but what about the patients that never been treated with neuroleptics to begin with? We raise the possibility that these drugs may make people more vulnerable to psychosis over the long term than in the normal course of the illness. This is the moment they worry about the drugs causing a change in the brain that worsens symptoms in the long term. And then researchers from uh, McGill University in Canada put together an explanation for what was happening. What was happening was this, and this becomes central to the whole problem with psychiatric drugs, including antidepressants. The drugs block, antipsychotics block dopamine receptors. They act as a break on dopamine transmission. Now your brain, being this extraordinary uh, you know, neuroplastic organ with all these feedback mechanisms says, uh-oh, I got to maintain my, my dopaminergic pathways, which are so central to brain function. And I've got to now accelerate my, my own physiology to compensate for this blockade. I got to put down the accelerator. And the way it does it, it's twofold. The presynaptic neurons for a period of time put out more dopamine than normal. Now that compensatory adaptation tends to uh, burn out after a while. But then my postsynaptic neurons, they're going to increase the density of the receptors. It's the brain is trying to make itself more sensitive to whatever dopamine that is now available. It increases the, its number of receptors. So the researcher said, <laughs> what you've done is you've created a, a drug-induced dopamine supersensitivity. And this has the effect of making people more biologically vulnerable to relapse. That would be the normal case of the illness. And it can induce a chronic psychosis, a tardive psychosis. And they began to say, they did a study and they said, you know, about 5% of people on these drugs become chronically psychotic each year. Now, the confirming evidence is this. At the same time that, so just the chemical imbalance story is this. And then I'll go into the confirming evidence in a second. We were told that people have this abnormality in the brain, right? The drugs fix it. What they found is the drugs caused the very abnormality hypothesized to cause the problem in the first place. And it's the same with the antidepressants. So you go on an, anti, an SSRI. It acts as, now it acts as an accelerator on serotonergic transmission. So what does your brain do trying to maintain a homeostatic equilibrium, that normal functioning? It dials down its own serotonergic machinery, okay? It acts as a break. There's always this opposite effect. 
So you go on an SSRI, what your brain does, it starts putting out less serotonin than normal, and it reduces the density of its receptors for serotonin on the postsynaptic neurons. And by the way, this is codified. This understanding of psychiatric drugs is actually presented in a paper by the uh, head of the National Institute of Mental Health in 1996, um, Stephen Hyman. He says this, all these drugs work by perturbing normal neurotransmitter function. In response to that perturbation, the brain goes through a compensatory adaptations, trying to maintain a, a, a homeostatic equilibrium, normal function. And at the end of this compensatory process, the brain is now operating in a manner that is both uh, quantitatively and qualitatively different than normal. So we're told these drugs are normalizing agents. The science says they're abnormalizing agents. And researchers looking at how the antipsychotics can in, in, induce sort of a increased chronicity point to this. And researchers looking at why people on antidepressants long-term tend to be more chronically ill look at this same mechanism. They say the drugs seem to be inducing these changes that cause a tardive or long-lasting dysphoria. Now, so, so this is the this sort of image of what is going on with these drugs that emerges in the 80s. Now, there's a long, there's been the best long-term study of antipsychotics is done by two people from the University of Chicago or the University of Illinois at Chicago named Martin Harrow and Tom Job. And in the 70s, where there's this time about worrying about long-term outcomes, they mount a, an ambitious 20-year study where it's going to be a naturalistic study. They're going to look at people treated with drugs in the hospital, 200 patients, 64 diagnosed with schizophrenia, uh, the others with mild or psychotic disorders. They're all going to be treated conventionally. They're going to be discharged, and they're just going to follow them at two and a half, four and a half, seven and a half, 10, 15, and 20 years. And here's what they find, which you haven't read about, but you should. This is the best long-term study in, in the United States history, even anywhere in the Western world. They found that those who got off starting about a year, year and a half, two years after initial discharge, so they get off, they take themselves off, they find, they, they start to do better at, at the end of two years. And then what they see is this remarkable increased recovery rate for those off, including schizophrenia patients, than those who stay on. Such that by year four and a half, the recovery rate for those off medication, this is schizophrenia patients, is eight times higher for those off than those staying on the medication. And that recovery rate difference stays true throughout their study. There's been eight long-term studies now uh, related to this, and, and all, not one, has found that after two years, the antipsychotics anti improve long-term outcomes. And in fact, Martin Harrow, in 2007, he went to the American Psychiatric Association, and he said, I conclude that schizophrenia patients off antipsychotic medications have significantly better global outcomes. And that fit with, and, they, and when they went back and tried to understand why, and they've done many, many papers on this, they point to this drug-induced dopamine supersensitivity. Now, I could tell you the same story with long-term outcome studies with antidepressants, where they end up much more chronically ill than in the natural course of the disorder, and, and researchers pointing to this same sort of mechanism as the problem. And here's, and, and Drew, here's the big problem. I'm a journalist, right? I'm not a researcher. I'm not a writer. 
but I can read research and I can read what they say and I can read what their studies show. And, 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 and my job as a journalist is to try to be an honest purveyor of information from the scientific literature to the public. Now, it makes me a controversial figure, but not by those who are actually doing the research. Like Martin Harrow and Tom Job, I know them well. They think, oh, you know, thank you for, you know, presenting our research in this way. But that's our problem. You, you know, you use the word over-prescribing. It's prescribing within a narrative that is not scientifically base that's the problem right there's no actual truth to support the long-term usage of these things that are there instead we're using other uh sort of almost like observational connections and going backwards in time and saying well because of this this is happening so that's good usage and mind you don't worry about the people who have been on long-term uh, depression medication and an antidepressants who are more likely to end up with bipolar disorder. And don't worry about these other things that are being found in the long-term studies that you're referencing. They're either an anomaly or how dare you even question the premise because what we're talking about has been, you know, scientific consensus, right? It's sci there's scientific consensus, quote unquote. So how dare you even question the premise? Yeah, there's not scientific consensus. There's guild consensus. Do you know what I mean yeah. by a guild? Psychiatry is a totally. guild. Totally. And I was, uh, for those that are not watching our video, I was putting scientific consensus in quotes on my yeah. end over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the point. Psychiatry adopted its disease model in 1980 and once it, with its publication of DSM-3. And once it adopts a disease model, these things are diseases in the brain, drugs are going to be the first line therapy. That becomes their product. Right? Then so much of the counseling and other therapy, they leave to others. As a guild, they can't now say like, oh, oh my God, our product is causing this chronification of disorders because what are they going to do about what they do? As Now, there are psychiatrists who do different things, but in large, they prescribe drugs. They even started calling themselves psychopharmacologists. That's the problem. It's a guild story and the guild try to present evidence that supports what they do as opposed to this broader line of research this broader story. And can I, can I show you, can I mention one thing, for example? Please. What can come from looking at this science? In 1992, a group in Northern Finland said, we're going to rethink our use of antipsychotics. And what we're going to do, they knew some of this research, we're not going to put people who are newly psychotic on the drugs right away. We're going to see if they can start to recover with sort of psychosocial care. And maybe a use of a, a sleeping agent every once in a while, help them regain sleep. Then they said, but if someone's not getting better after four or five weeks, we'll use an antipsychotic, low dose, help them sort of tranquilize them and maybe engage better with this psychosocial care. A lot of it was family therapy. And then after six months, uh, we're going to see of those who've been on the drugs, who can come off successfully. So this goes back to this for whom and for how long, right? They're going to end up with three groups. Those who can recover with never being medicated, those who recovered, who needed them for a short time, and those who need them long-term. Now, they began doing this in 1992. And for the next 20 years, they studied every single, this is in Northern Finland, in a place called Tornio. Every single patient who came in psychotic, they studied their long-term outcomes. And their long-term outcomes became dramatically different 
than anywhere else in the Western world. At the end of five years of their first episode psychotic patients, 80% ended, uh, were asymptomatic at the end of five years and working or back in school. They weren't on disability. Only 20%, and maybe it was even more like 15%, were, were now on disability. That became the chronic population. What was their medication use, antipsychotic use? At the end of five years, two-thirds of their first episode patients had never been exposed to antipsychotics. They found with intensive psychosocial family care, people could gradually get better and, and really recover with never being exposed to the drugs. There was another um, 13% or so that needed the drugs for a time. And then 20% did seem to need the drugs long-term. They just couldn't function at all without the use of the medication. So they found a for whom and for how long model. And now their 19-year results are much better than the rest of Finland that uses the, the, the uh, conventional care. Uh, much less disability, much less medication use, better social functioning. And so that this goes to your point, Drew, are we talking about never use of the drugs? No, we're talking about best use of the drugs. And here's a clear example of possibilities if you, if, you, if you take all this in. Now, I don't really know how they deal with the thought of what I talked about before, this increasing the you know, this drug-induced dopamine supersensitivity. However, they do use very low doses, and that may be part of it as well. I'm not sure. But... What the point here is, if we will be honest about the science and the risks with these, including the risks of becoming bipolar with antidepressants and stimulants and all, we could build a system of care that had a place for drugs in them, but it would be a very different place. And it would be a place where there's informed consent, there's worry about the harms, and, and frankly, there's a focus on trying to minimize the use of the drugs, especially over any longer period of time. Well, you know, one of my favorite quotes from a Nobel Prize winner, Max Planck, is, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with it, a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but <laughs> rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. So it seems, you know, we have a few parallel things that are happening. One, we cannot deny the role of, uh, in the United States, advertising and how advertising has really shaped the drug industry and being able to advertise directly to patients and to get patients to go to their doctor and say, hey, I think I should be on this drug. And now the patients are creating demand for the doctor to then say, okay, I guess I got to learn about this you know, drug. And the other component that's there is because the problem has gotten so bad, I've seen many of your talks on uh, YouTube that have been uploaded over the years. And I always love watching you speak uh, solo because you go and you orchestrate and paint this beautiful picture of if this was all working, why through all these different measures that we're tracking is the problem getting worse and worse and worse every single year that uh, humanity continues on since the invention of these uh, drugs that have been in. So we have this perfect storm of advertising um, an explosion of uh, patients asking their doctors for this medication that's there, as well as the problem continuing to get worse. And uh, I guess I would ask you, you know, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful at all that things are starting to change, maybe because a new generation is coming in? 
Or do you see a doubling down on the original misguided science and us going further down the rabbit hole? Boy, that's a great way to present it. Um, you know, first of all, if you want to look at this as a business story, it's an extraordinarily successful business story. So, for example, uh, in 1987, we in the United States spent about $800 million on psychiatric drugs. Now, with all this, you know, advertising, drug advertising to consumers, which really took off in the late 80s and 1990s, uh, they built an incredible market for psychiatric drugs. And it, we're spending something like 40, by 2008, we were spending $40 billion on psychiatric drugs. That's a 50-fold increase in the market size in, you know, 20-some years. Now, from a, from a business, a, you know, capitalist point of view, that's just a success story. They sold a product to the United States and they did it by, you know, with ads that created a demand. And, you know, one of the, go on the ads. You, one of the, we were talking about this the other day. I was given a presentation and they said, well, you know, the ads are like this. You see someone, you don't see someone lying in bed with depression. <laughs> what you see is someone all of a sudden with the, with the drug walking on the beach with a beautiful person. Oh, we all want to walk on the beach with a beautiful person. And then, the, you know, there's this little, there's this thing about the harms where they say it real fast, right? And you may not have sex and you blah, blah, blah. But you're just focused on the image. And they did a great job about creating a demand, including in parents saying they can fix their kids with drugs as well. So now they go to the doctor, and it's not just that they're asking for the drug, they're demanding the drug, <laughs> in essence. And a doctor sort of has this, what's called an allopathic compulsion. A person comes to a doctor wanting to leave with something. They don't really want to come to a doctor and say, like, I don't have anything for you. I don't have a pill for you. So there's sort of a a ritual of a doctor prescribing something so that the patient goes home happy. So that pulls it, takes it into this thing. And, you know, I think it's like 85% of psychiatric drugs are actually prescribed by GPs who, frankly, are responding to that demand. It's sort of like moving people through their, you know, their line of patients during the, during the day. So that's what we have going. It's very successfully commercially. And yet we have these worsening outcomes. Now, there's a new book out by the former head of the NIMH named Tom Insel. And he says, he basically raises this very question. He says, you know, more and more people are getting treated. And yet our outcomes keep getting worse. More and people on disability. More and, people, more and more people committing suicide. More and more problems with early death. What's going on? Now, you began with that quote from Max Planck. So he recognizes the problem, but he didn't dare go to your answer that maybe the treatments are the problem. So what he said is, it seems like a paradox that as more people are being treated, we're having these worse outcomes. And he knows, by the way, that, that uh, there's all this research showing there's problems, but he didn't dare say it because he's a retiring psychiatrist. And so what he says is the problem is the drugs can't do it all. The problem is society doesn't provide enough psychosocial support. Okay, I'm all on board with giving more psychosocial support, but he, he didn't dare look at the harmful effects of the drugs. So who's gonna do it? It's not gonna be the people who made a career and a livelihood of, of telling this story. They just won't. So where is our hope? I 
have the chance sometimes to speak with psychiatric residents, young doctors, young psychiatrists. Um, I have the, had the good fortune for the last four or five years to uh, be asked to present to uh, psychiatric residents at Temple Medical School. And they're open-minded. The younger people are open-minded because the evidence of failure is everywhere around them. What do we say about the DSM and its diagnostic categories? The people who build it, Alan Francis and other people who create it say like, these aren't valid, these are just constructs. They're not valid disorders. That's like the people in the know say the DSM is not valid. The people in the know say, yeah, we didn't find the chemical imbalances. We didn't find them. We don't know about any of the pathology. We really aren't finding the genes. So the whole biological effort is a failure. It's a paradigm that has failed. And if you're a young psychiatrist, you now have a chance to create a new paradigm. So that's my hope is that young, smart, caring people. And you know what? You talk to psychiatric residents, they're young, smart, caring people. They are. They're wonderful human beings. The problem is, where can they do this? Because then the minute they graduate, they enter a system that is set up to medicate and to diagnose. In fact, they can't get paid unless they do that. So my hope comes from these young people who are uh, you know, inheriting a broken system, which calls out for change. At the same time, they're entering a system that produces profits and is set up to do the same thing that they've been doing for the last 40 years. So I'm a half glass guy. On the one hand, if on my optimistic day, I say like, and there's so much disenchantment with the population at large with, with the problems. Can we really keep doubling down on this way of doing things? Because we're all burning out. It's not working. At the same time, systems, you know, systems that are, you know, that have been built up around this. There's so many providers built up around this. It's really hard. It's like a big ocean liner that just, just keeps butting into the iceberg. <laughs> but it's hard to change that liner's course. So I'm both optimistic and extremely pessimistic. And, and frankly, I... Tom Insel's book makes me pessimistic. <laughs> Tom Insel knows better. He actually talked about the failure of the drugs seven years ago, but now he's doing a, public, uh, uh, a book for the public and he says, listen, let's just shift this way and let's actually give people homes and meaning in their life because the drugs can't do everything. He avoids the real, the central issue because it just isn't politically acceptable for his guild. And to my mind, it showed a lack of courage. I'm all for it. You know, helping people find a meaning in life, social life, get, making sure people have homes. Couldn't be more in bird with that. But you have to look at the drugs and he won't look at the drugs. That's what made me pessimistic. Yeah, it's a challenging place to be, especially for somebody who's worried about their reputation, which is why, again, when you have people that come from the outside and maybe have a, a reputation that they're not worried about or not that everybody's not worried about their reputation, but their reputation is known for questioning things and going to audiences and people who their audience comes to them to say, hey, what do we know and what do we not know about this subject? And that's why I'm so passionate about the world of podcasting and now so many people going to places like YouTube and podcast 
And sure, is there a lot of riffraff? Is there a lot of conversations that don't make sense, that are don't have merit? Of course there is. But guess what? You turn on the news and you get the same thing, right? So right. it's more that if you do find individuals that have the credibility, that can show their homework as you have, then you can listen in and say, wow, what's a different alternative look like? How could I look at things differently? And, you know, sometimes the the individuals who are deep naysayers on the subject or even are maybe even upset because you're having the conversation in the first place, they their default argument, even if they partially believe some of the things that you're talking about is, well, what else could we do, right? Like drugs work and like, what else are we going to do? Patients have a very short attention span. They don't want to go into these lifestyle modification things. They don't want to exercise, even though exercise is on par and beats out a lot of medications when it comes to psychiatric drugs that are there. Um, what do you say to that when people come back and say, well, does the public have an appetite for going down a different path in the first place? Well, you know, uh, appetites in the public are created with, with marketing and all. You can create appetites and, 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 you know, you can create appetites with information. Uh, you know, mm. so, you know, I've really focused on how the story that we've organized ourselves around is belied by the science. Okay. And I've really focused on that. But once you see that, that it's belied by the science, it opens up the very question that you're raising. What can we do differently? And actually, I think that the, the real problem is where the money is. There's not much money for promoting these alternatives as there are for promoting drugs, you know, because there's just not the profits. But there, I honestly believe it's been such a failure, this sort of brain, you know, this drug-based paradigm of care. People are eager for more holistic uh, uh, approaches. And yes, we in America have been conditioned to have the pill, the easy answer pill, right? Just take your pill and you don't have to do anything else and your kid will be better and you'll be better. And these other things do take time and they take a commitment and, and that sort of thing. They also, but there's two parts of this. There's also a society that can build better environments for people to be in, including kids. They can build, you know, so, so for example, I know a guy who works with some of the worst kids, the worst, the most troubled kids in California. Now he's a world-class rock climber. It's one of the world's best rock climbers. What he does is he takes these kids from Oakland and San Francisco who are seen as so disturbed, and then he starts taking them out to rock climb. Okay? He's not teaching them therapy. What he's teaching them is when you rock climb, what happens? Well, you got someone belaying you, so you have to trust the person up above. And sometimes you're belaying somebody, so they have to trust you. So all of a sudden, he's building trust. People go up a wall, they confront fears. And then when they drive back and forth, what happens? They have a chance to talk to a mentor. And all of a sudden, there's a bond forming. Now, there's no, quote, therapy going on, but he's creating a new environment for these kids to be in. So one of the things is when you asked, sometimes you can just create better environments for people to be in. In other words, it's not all reliant on the person. Another example of this is a guy... Is there's a group in Connecticut. They're called Volunteers for Psychotherapy. And here's and they basically work with people who've come out of mental hospitals. And here's what they say. We'll give you an hour of psychotherapy for free 
can come talk to us. But you have to pay for it by doing two hours of volunteer work. <laughs> so now what does the volunteer work do? Well, now all of a sudden, they're helping others. They're not always the one being helped. And maybe it's working at a, an animal shelter, delivering food to the elderly, whatever it might be. But now they're getting a chance to help others, feel good about that, have a purpose in life. And, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the person who does this likes to joke is, I'm not sure how valuable the therapy is, but I'm pretty sure the, the volunteer work is, 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 is helpful. <laughs> so that's that. And then the other thing is, how do we promote wellness? Now, there's a lot of things about promoting exercise, diet, uh, sleep. Um, somehow, you know, there's not, there's, I mean, I mean, there's, there's an industry there and you can make some money, but it's not like corporations extracting huge profits, but somehow we have to build that appetite, which is there for self, for self care. How do you eat well? Why is exercise important? You know, why is it important to have some socialization, like going out to whether it be bowling or a book group or anything like that? So these are the solutions you see. And here's the amazing thing. What you find is if you can build more supportive environments, they're always, in some ways, they're always helpful, including for psychotic patients. And there's a long uh, line of history showing that to be so. So we know we can do better environments. It, we know we can build better environments for kids. So we as a society need to take that on as our responsibility because it's so expensive to have this explosion of mental, you know, mental distress in our society. And then somehow we just have to promote this sort of physical wellness as a path to mental wellness as well. And I know Dr. Hyman does it, you know, he's been, I, I believe he's done initiatives at the, at the federal level to promote these sort of wellness initiatives. And you, you and I are human beings, right? So what is the first thing that throws us off? If I eat like crap, if I eat crap day after day after day, I start feeling sort of crappy. So, I mean, having a good diet is often so important. You know, I, I, I know people who work with, um, you know, youth, teenagers who come, you know, from pretty impoverished backgrounds. And they'll ask them, what was your breakfast like? What do you think their breakfast is like? First of all, half the time their, their parents are working their asses off trying to, you know, service jobs and all. Oh, I got a donut on the way. <laughs> and there was a program, by the way, in the 90s that began to say, let's bring, uh, let's change our cafeterias in schools. Okay, I think there was a place in Appleton that did this. Appleton, Wisconsin. Instead of having the crap we serve, let's have, starting with breakfast, really, you know, cooked, baked, healthy foods. We'll do that for breakfast. We'll do it for lunch. And we'll do this. We'll teach the kids how to cook. And we'll teach them the importance of using real foods. Guess what happened in that, in that school district? Oh, and also they took out all the Coke machines. You know how a lot of schools that got Coke machines to make money and all this stuff? They took those out. What happened there? Well, uh, academic achievement went up. Uh, ADHD diagnoses went way down. In other words, it was successful just bringing in this sort of nutritional approach. But it didn't stay because there was some money involved with actually delivering good food to kids, delivering breakfasts. And it, it just never expanded into other schools. But that's an example of 
a society that is trying to raise its kids with good nutrition. And you see this in France. They, they actually care about what food they're, where they're, where they're treating their kids. So long-winded answer to your question, there are things we can do, but somehow we have to have a national way for building better environments and encouraging these appetites and discouraging the idea that a pill is a simple solution to our many problems. I think that's well said. And you know, going back to um, some of the work that uh, we were talking about earlier, also the understanding that maybe these studies that have been held up as the definitive reason that these drugs are used, especially in the case of psychiatric drugs for long-term usage, really questioning the narrative to begin with. And you know, in his book, The Sickening, just going back to that, just because we had him recently on the podcast and it sounds like you're aware of his work. I don't know if you guys have met at, at all before, but I would love to connect you guys. We've exchanged emails. I don't doctor. know if we've ever met in person, but we've written each other emails. Yeah, Dr. John Abramson, one of the things he was saying is that, you know, you go to your average uh, physician that are there, again, well-intentioned, well-meaning, they want to be there. They all got into medicine for good, you know, reason and to make a difference. Most of them don't know that the peer reviewers don't have access to the raw data, that they are reliant on the pharmaceutical company's interpretation of the data and their conclusions, and they're basing their peer review on those. And in the book, there's also solutions on how to get there. We need a public citizens group that's independently looking at these things so that the pharmaceutical companies can protect their sort of, uh, you know, their intellectual property because there might be some other drug development that might be in there. But we need a public citizens group to be able to look at this and say, this, ask this very question that you were asking earlier, was this pharmaceutical trial designed primarily for marketing purposes, that doesn't inherently make it bad, but is it gotten egregious and completely out of whack uh, for the pursuit of profits and not looking at the actual real world usage of how these things fly into the system? So even helping people understand, like when I came across that information and I started sharing it with, I have many doctors in my family, my brother-in-law, many of my cousins, uncles, other stuff. I grew up in the world of psychiatric medicine. My dad was the CFO of a group of psychiatric hospitals uh, growing up. Wow, okay. <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, again, I heard the sort of standard lines that were there. And, you know, he's more on the administrative side. He's not on the, um, but I heard the terms chemical imbalances growing up. So until we start to question the pres premise of how, you know, the sausage that's going into the sausage machine in the first place we are not going to be able to unwind and start to think for ourselves. You know, I want to ask you, oh, sorry, were you about to say something? No, no, you're exactly right. I mean, the problem is there is a process for basically indoctrinating doctors. I mean, it starts with what you're talking about, industry-funded trials, but then they also pay, uh, quote, thought leaders to give continuing medical education. The industry pays people to be, give com community medical education classes and to give talks to doctors. So the doctors goes out to a talk and he's he, he's actually not, the, the GP may not even be familiar with the literature, but now he's got this guy from some famous, uh, you know, university or something saying, here's the, here's why you need to use this drugs. So there's a whole sausage making industry for promoting the drugs. Uh, and the amount of money, by the way, that uh, I did a report on this for the website I run, Madden America. There are 64 psychiatrists 
in the last decade who've got over a million dollars from from pharmaceutical companies to promote their drugs through community, community medical education programs, et cetera. So that, just to say what you're saying and John's saying is, this is the problem. There's a, a process for selling a story that well-meaning doctors hear, but they don't have the time really to go into the actual studies. And, and then we have the problem as what John says, we can't even see the data on these studies. So this is part of the problem. We have a corporate enterprise that creates the story that medicine adheres to. You know, your book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, uh, came out in 2010, I believe. Is that right? 2010, it came out? That's right. And so that's now uh, 12 years the book has been out. And there's, uh, if individuals are familiar with the term anti-fragile, that something that's anti-fragile gets stronger when it's stress tested. And I would love to hear from you because as you eloquently stated in the beginning of the interview, you had no skin in the game. In fact, you kind of came from the place of you were the champion of these SSRI drugs, trying to explain to individuals how well they worked and how great they did. And they were insulin for diabetes. They were addressing this very specific mechanism. And we should be also thankful because that's the miracle of modern science and, and the researchers that are out there. So if anything, you would have skin in the game to continue to promote that. But you said you were asking a base, basic question. And because you had that question, you were open-minded, you were willing to go with wh which whatever direction that that question continued to take you down. Now, as part of that process, because you're a reporter, you're constantly on the lookout. Well, you're a journalist now, but in the past you were a reporter. You want to actually challenge your ideas. You want to hear the arguments, the debates. You've participated in a few debates. We'll link to a couple of them in the in the show notes. Since the book had originally come out in 2012, have there been uh, fair criticisms, uh, debates that you've been part of, or uh, dialogue that you've had that have made the book and your central message of do these psychiatric drugs actually cause more harm long-term than good, have there been a handful or a couple of things that you've come across that have made your argument even stronger, but they were good criticisms that came into the foray? Anything that you can think of? You know, that's such a wonderful question. <laughs> I love the thing about anti-fragility. So, you know, when I reported, when I wrote Anatomy of an Epidemic, you know, the literature is vast. I did my, and I went about it this way. I first wanted to say, well, what is the evidence for the use of the drugs this way, okay? What, it, what do they cite for the long-term use? And so for antipsychotics, it's a relapse studies that I mentioned where you have people on the drugs, one group is taken off, one group stays on, and the group taken off does relapse more frequently. And that's the same basically with the antidepressants. And all. So I first wanted to say, okay, what is the evidence is cited? Does that prove long-term? And do and is there even anybody, is there any studies that do show long-term benefits? Okay, so I first tried to flesh out the evidence for, you know, for the use of the drugs. And just to go through this process a little bit, then I would find people saying, well, we really don't have evidence that, you know, for the long-term use. So now I knew it was a valid question. And that and then I could go through this process of trying to put together a puzzle. Even so, when I was done, 
And I did it, you know, I looked at long-term outcomes for antipsychotics, antidepressants, change in bipolar outcomes, and stimulants, right? And benzodiazepine. It's a lot to cover in a book. I'm, you know, a journalist. I'm not a researcher. And so it's, it's, it's a pretty vulnerable position to say, hey, guys, I think you're wrong. I think here's what your evidence shows. So I was, you know, I wondered, did I miss something? And to this end, I still felt we need more research on this. We need more attention to that. So I actually helped found something called the Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care, a nonprofit that would help fund further research into long-term outcomes. In other words, maybe they would fund stuff that belied what I knew to be true, what I thought to be true, because I thought that that is what you should do. If you don't, you know, the, the evidence I put together, I found compelling at the time, but it wasn't as robust as you might want. Okay, because it just hasn't been the way we look at drugs. So part of my spiel was we need more research. And maybe this will be proven to be wrong. And in a way, it would be nice if I were proven to be wrong, because the story I was telling told of great harm done. Now, the criticism I really got. So the first thing I want to see is, is anybody going to say I misquoted him? And nobody, and I cited a hundred of studies. No researcher themselves said I misidentified their study or presented it out of context. Now, others said I did, but not the researchers themselves. And one of the reasons I knew I wouldn't be saying about misquoting is because I didn't quote anybody from an interview. I quoted them from their written discussions in their own papers. Because now I knew, like, you said this. Here's the context. You can't tell me. You know, I was doing something. You published this paper. And so because of that, I did it. I, I did, I did um, go through this period where no one said I misquoted them. So that was important to me. And that starts to make you feel stronger. Now, the, one of the key studies was the one by Heroin Job, okay? Heroin Job in 2007 had said, yeah, we'll get this recovery rate eight times higher from the unmedicated schizophrenia patients. But they said, and I wrote this in the book, it's not the drugs causing the worst outcomes. It's just that there's a percentage of good prognosis patients who can do better off medication. Okay, so it's, they, they weren't blaming the drugs in 2007. They were just saying there's this good prognosis patients that can do better off. So I did, I did, I did write that in the book. But I also pointed out to Martin Harrow, I went to him, I said, but wait a minute. You also have this data where, this is sort of a, an interesting story. You also have this data for milder psychotic disorders. Okay, the milder people do better off than the milder people on. I said, but here's your, the real thing that I would lead, you know, makes me question whether it's just good prognosis. The people with milder disorders who got, who stayed on the drugs, did worse than schizophrenia who got off. Now, schizophrenia is supposed to be a more chronic, worse thing. And I swear to God, he said, wow, we really hadn't thought about that. Mm. And they went back and now looked at this, and then they said, it's the drugs. Now, that was after 2010, okay, after the book was published. And they've now published like six, seven uh, papers saying it's the drugs. That's what we're seeing happening. 
It so happens I talked to Martin Harrell uh, just Sunday because his partner, Tom Job died last week. Mm. And he's saying, yeah, this is what we have in the show. But here's my, my point. A lot of people went after me for Martin Harrell. They said, oh, he's, he doesn't even understand Martin Harrell's study. It's a naturalistic study. And it was just the good, good, uh, the people, the good prognosis went off. And they used that to attack me. Meanwhile, I knew Martin Harrell was telling me like, you know, I think you're showing us something with our own data. We didn't really see. And they spent a decade doing it. This is where I got stronger is when they went back to their own data. And they even cite me saying Whitaker is right. Wow. So I felt real strong. And the other thing is I got in these debates. People would attack me, say you're a horrible human being and stuff. But they never presented data that told a different story. Right. It's easier to call That's you crazy that, than it is to you know, actually whatever. point by point go through each one and say, here's your evidence and here's our counter evidence. Instead, it was something else. It was, a, you know, it was kill the messenger, really. So that made me much feel much stronger about it as well. And then, so for example, both on ant, I know of people that actually then did retrospective studies on antidepressants. They all concluded, there was one in Switzerland, there's one in the United States, and, then, and using this study and said, yeah, listen, there was a number of studies saying antidepressants are things, making things more chronic. This came out after 2010. There were people that have done studies in, about looking at long-term outcomes for, uh, with antipsychotics. They've all been negative. Now, I feel this as tragic, but it does make me feel less fragile because the evidence that was there in 2010 got stronger. I did a second edition in 2015 and looked at all this evidence. So unfortunately, in a way, the evidence is so much stronger in 2022 than it was in 2010. And, and, and you know, I still get, you know, hammered and that sort of thing, but you've watched me present. I just try to present the evidence. <laughs> You know, and I, I'm not like, if, when I present in public, when I've been in debates and I've been in grand rounds, I just say, here's, here's your evidence. <laughs> and you can yell at me and stuff, but it's your evidence. Mm. And, and unfortunately, it just keeps getting stronger and stronger. Well, but I, you know, I love your question because just, can I say one thing, Drew? Sorry. Please, please. On. Your question's so important. If you do something like this, you should have an open mind that you can be proven wrong. If you don't have that, then you're no longer being a good sort of approaching it with a scientific mind. So your question is right on. No, and I think it's takes a lot of courage. You know, I want to take a moment to acknowledge you because I'm sure there have been many as fulfilling and as beautiful as this work has been, even though you might have had doubt along the way of like, is there something that I'm missing? Is there some part of the piece that I don't get? How is it that I, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm coming across this stuff and the researchers and the medical doctors themselves might be missing this. And yet still, even though when you double check and triple check your work and make sure you're not misquoting people, there's a little bit of attempt that takes that leap of faith for courage. You know, it's that courage to say that this is most likely going to have, at least if people go and Google me, reputational damage. I'm not going to have yeah. certain career opportunities. And yet still the message is so important that I have to tell the story because if I don't, who else will tell this story, right? Yeah, eventually somebody will. But is that going to be in another 
25 years? Is it another 30 years? And how many more patients get worse? How many people get sick? And how many doctors who genuinely want to do the right thing behind their patients that they're taking care of are like, well, I just didn't know. I didn't know any different. So I want to acknowledge you for that, you know, because it's, uh, even though it's been quite some time that you've been out there, um, still it very much feels that, you know, this message that you're putting out there, it's now really starting to get into the zeitgeist of the people that can take it to the next level and incorporate it through their work. But meantime, I can't, I bet you have countless stories of how often you were passed up for an opportunity or you were not allowed to do something or that you got criticism from even people that you admired uh, because they just looked at the surface level of it. So just want to acknowledge how much that took from you over the years. You know, um, it has taken a toll <laughs> because you do get your character, uh, you know, attacked. And if people don't know, and all of a sudden you're seen as, you know, counter to these experts at these universities and all who are speaking out, it's pretty easy to think you must be the crank, <laughs> right? Because they don't know. Um, so that's been, I, I'll be honest, you know, there's so many things that are much more difficult than this, but it is difficult to, to, to just stay true to this. I mean, it does hurt your reputation. You know, magazines even said, you can't write for us now because you'll be seen as bad biased. <laughs> Once you break with conventional wisdom, it's really tough. Yeah. On the other hand, it's been extraordinarily rewarding emotionally professionally. Uh, I've had nothing more rewarding in my whole life to see, to have a hand in sort of changing this discussion, what you're talking about, and actually to see alternatives do spring up. Like Israel now is rethinking its care of um, psychotic patients. They're, they're forming these satiria houses. They brought me over there to help talk about that. They're changing where they're basically looking at this for whom and for how long. Norway at a governmental level said, we need to have uh, medication-free treatment for people who want it because there's reason, for, including for psychotic patients, because there's reason that will produce better outcomes. A hospital in Norway started up calling itself the first medication-free uh, you know, hospital in the world. And it came from seeing, uh, it wasn't a conference I presented at, but it was a conference where people took slides from me about Martin and Harold, presented it, and, and the psychiatric nurse said, well, we've got to do something different. And now there's a whole hospital. So, you know, I've had a, I'll a, add a, in one more impact, to that. impact in that. If I could, if yeah. I'll add in one more to that, the doctor, the psychiatrist sure. that introduced me to your work, Dr. Omid Naim, good friend of mine, incredible psychiatrist. If anybody's looking for an integrative and open-minded psychiatrist that sort of thinks the way that you're talking about in the book of like creating other alternatives, he's based here in in Los Angeles, but he was inspired through partly your influence and other people that he's exposed to over the year. Uh, he was inspired to create a nonprofit called the La Meda Project, and they go into group homes and they provide a more integrative approach for these kids who wow. are extremely troubled. And I just want to say, like, you know, sometimes we don't even know the impact that our work has, and they're doing incredible work. They just partnered with the YMCA of Los Angeles and are rolling out a program. And they have people like uh, actor Ben Affleck and uh, 
and and other top celebrities that are all part of their nonprofit profit that are there to like spread the word further. So, I, you know, when I hear about stories like that, I feel extremely hopeful. Boy, that's a beautiful. You just made my day to hear this. I mean, yeah, I feel hopeful with that too. And um, if I even had a small uh, role in helping make that happen or encouraging it, then that's just what more reward could you have than that from your from your work. That's like the best thing that you can possibly hear. Robert, is there any final words that you want to leave our audience with, especially for people who, um, you know, I think at this point in time, everybody knows somebody and even the person listening might be somebody who's been told that there's a central chemical imbalance. They need to be on these drugs long-term and they have questions that are there and they're trying to weigh out the pros and cons. Of course, at the end of the day, this podcast is not medical advice. We're always trying to provide people with information where you can find hopefully an open-minded doctor. It doesn't even have to be integrated, just open-minded, somebody that will see you as a human being and work with you on putting together a personalized treatment plan that's best for you. But yeah, any final words that you want to leave uh, our audience with? Well, first of all, thank you for the interview. It's been really uh, very uh, and it's been really good to have this chance to speak with you in this sort of depth. So thank you for the interview. You know, I, I do run a website called madinamerica.com and we do have uh, informational pages on there related to drugs. So part of the message I say to people is, it, I believe in informed consent. And, and so my whole thing is to provide information that can help people make informed choices. So we do try to provide, uh, you know, summaries of research and access to the documents themselves on our website. So they can go there and find that. But the message, I think, is once you get away from the chemical imbalance story, you can find a message of incredible hope and, and, and for your own future and for the future of kids. What you find in nature is, is yeah, people can lapse into depression. People can lapse into psychosis. Uh, they can have sort of these manic episodes. And, you know, kids certainly can be misbehave in school. <laughs> but what you see in nature is a extraordinary resilience and the capacity to change and the capacity to develop new paths in life, especially if you change your environments. And like just you just talked about a program that sounds like getting these troubled kids a chance to, I don't know, maybe play basketball and certain things like that or engage in certain activities. And really, if we really look at the, going back to the beginning, the natural spectrum of outcomes, what you find over and over again is this, so many psychiatric problems can be episodic in kind if you get the right sort of psychosocial care, including psychosis. But not everyone recovers from that, but you know, the majority can first episode psychosis. So the hope is human beings are resilient. We do respond to our environment. We are built to respond to our environments. So if you can change environments so often, that can be a, a you know, a, a path to better, better lives, better recoveries. You know, I do think one of the problems is we have such a stressful society in terms of work and all that and how parents are taking, you know. But that's the message I would give is, we human beings, yes, we struggle, we suffer, we can have, we, we struggle with our minds, we can have awful feelings, and these feelings can persist, but we also have this extraordinary capacity for resilience and change, and if one of the real problems of the chemical imbalance, it makes it things you don't have that chance of changing, 
It's like that you have this fixed problem in your head. That's not true. And we human beings, we change in, in, in response to our environment. And hope is such an elixir for a, a positive elixir. And what you're talking about, functional medicine, thinking about nurturing the body, body, the body is part of the mind. I mean, they're absolutely the same thing. Uh, you know, that's another path towards a better way forward. So as, as sort of pessimistic as can this all sound, I hope this hour and a half, which has been such a pleasure, leaves people with a sense of hope that change is possible. And we just have to find ways to discover some of these strengths within ourselves. I think the most hopeful message is always the message that says that, hey, even though it might be a little overwhelming to hear that our lifestyle as a society, or maybe your lifestyle as an individual person, or the lack of community or social isolation, or your diet in some cases, or not having access to just good group therapy, uh, again, that falls on the individual, but it also falls on society. And as overwhelming as that can feel like, oh my gosh, you're saying that I'm part of the problem. It's actually the most hopeful message because the law of responsibility says, if you're part of the problem, you can actually do something to benefit it. But the other alternative idea is that if you're just fundamentally broken, guess what? You're broken. And so you're a victim for the rest of your life. And don't worry, don't do anything besides take these medications because nothing can be done in the first place. So actually, I'll take, even though the first one can feel overwhelming when you step into it, I'll always take that because at least I can do something about it. Robert, thank you for being on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. If people have not picked up one of your books, and I always recommend Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise, rise of Mental Illness, uh, you know, it won the U.S. Investigative Reporters and Editors Book Award. It's a great place for people to start if you're a reader. And uh, if you're a listener and a watcher, I'll link to some of the other favorite interviews and debates that you've put out there. Uh, and also, Mad in America, your resource uh, website. So, Robert, thank you for being on the podcast. It's a true pleasure to finally get a chance to connect with you. Uh, Drew, thank you very much. It was a, a, an honor and pleasure for me. I really enjoyed it.